Thanks, man. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. I haven't seen you since um, Vegas. I think Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Thanks for inviting us and and hosting. When was that? Yeah. November, something like that. October. I think, yes, October. October. Yeah. It was like a weird time, like COVID, right? Like we're going to Vegas, it's COVID, uh, going to conference, you know, hundreds and I don't know, thousands of people. I don't know how many was there, but felt like not quite capacity. But still, first time since COVID started, I've been in a, in a big crowd. It was weird, but but fun. And thanks for that nice dinner and all that of course, kind of stuff. It was, a, it was a blast. It yeah. was. But a lot of people asking us when we're doing when we're doing that again. So. Oh yeah. You mean your well, team or other people? Like a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. People that were there. People that saw that we were there. You know. Nice. Trying to do trying to do a couple more of those. They're a little hard to always coordinate, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was great. So, Simeon Garrett, let's uh, start at the beginning. I think you have an interesting childhood. And I know this because we used to work together. We worked together back in 2010. Yep. And you helped us uh, organize our offices in Hong Kong and China and all that kind of stuff. But but going way back, you know, you were really interesting to me because you're a good-looking white kid that spoke fluent Mandarin and Cantonese <laughs> too, I think. And it was like a unicorn. It was fascinating. Um, and that's mostly because your parents, right? And how you grew up. Yeah. Yeah. My, my family was in China for, for still kind of over there, but for almost 35 years. Um, and I, as a byproduct of being six months old was, was with them. Yeah. Not, not much choice at that point. Yeah. Um, and then after I graduated, went back, worked there for a couple of years. And then after 2010, I came here and met you. Actually, I think I, re- I remember originally, I think it was like a Craigslist ad that was for like a, a media, <laughs> media, it was like a media relations position or something. I think. Probably. I love <laughs> Craigslist. And that's uh, how Nick joined too, is originally <laughs> Craigslist. Cassidy, you came through regular channels or? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, well, hey, if it works, it works, you know? It does actually. It works great most of the time. You can, uh, I forget who we were with, but we were at dinner with Paul Williams and yeah, he hired his, his number two from Craigslist originally. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know why I think it's, there's something to it. If you want to get somebody who's, um, hungry and keen, they're probably looking at Craigslist, you know, they're, 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 you know, if you get, I don't, I don't really love using recruiters They're They call people that are gainfully employed and talk them into making a change and all that kind of stuff. And Kind of like uh, starting with someone who's hungry and bright and fresh and, and has lots of energy. But tell me more about your childhood. Where where did you grow up in Asia? So when I was really young, I lived in Hong Kong. So that was where I first moved, I think, when I was about six months old. Um, and then after that, I think when I was around two, um, so junior, well, I guess maybe three, I moved to Beijing. So I was in Beijing for a couple of years. And then after Beijing moved down to Hainan Island, which is kind of like the Hawaii of China. It's in this, right in the South. So I was there for five, five and a half years. Um, basically all due to my parents work and different projects that they were working on. And then Mm -hmm. from there, moved to a city called, uh, which one was it? Was Beihai, which is basically like directly across from Haiko on the mainland. Um, and then from there I moved to a city called Zanjiang, which is another small city on the mainland, just down the coast, closer to Hong Kong. Um, and then after that, I moved to Malaysia for high school. So I was kind of in and out between Malaysia and China for about six years from seventh grade until 12th grade till I graduated. Nice. Um, and then my parents had moved a couple more times. And by the time I was leaving there, they had moved to Dandong, which is on the border of North Korea. Yeah. So, so crazy. 
people are always like, oh, where did you live in China? It's yeah. like, well, <laughs> All you at what year? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I moved back after university, I, I moved to Dongguan, which is right in between Shenzhen and Guangzhou, which is yeah. kind of like the manufacturing capital of- So you to university here? Yep. Trinity Western? Uh, Trinity, and then I, I finished my degree in New York. Oh, cool. So I kind of did a split degree, did some Kwantlen split courses, and then ended up kind of- not wanting to, I always wanted to go to NYU. My parents never would have let me. Yeah. So when my parents moved back to China, I packaged up my credits and applied for Stern. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, fake, faked my way into saying like I'd been there the whole time, but no, not really. I mean, I just wanted, I wanted a big city and Vancouver was really small and I'd grown up in Hong Kong and Beijing and you know, yeah. I felt like I wanted a, a bit of a change. That's cool. And what did your parents do that took them all over Asia? They had always, they've always been involved in, instead of NGO human aid work. So everything yeah. from orphanages, you know, old folks' homes, uh, bringing human aid supplies into kind of rural areas. Um, I mean, I can't even name half the projects that they've worked on. I don't even know half mm -hmm. of them. Um, even right now, they're actually in the border of Thailand and Burma. So yeah. they're not, not in China anymore, but now they're doing kind of like crisis relief between all the Burmese that are fleeing. Is this church-related work or is it all different types of stuff? Some of it was church-related and then it kind of shifted to be a blend between actual like give back businesses. Um, so like, you know, investing or raising capital to go into businesses that would then give back to the community. So you I mean, you have to have a visa to work in China. Mm -hmm. So you can't just be there as a, whatever you want to call it, a missionary or a, a church worker or something like that. You actually have to have businesses. They had, they had coffee shops, they had um, orphanages. They started the first English speaking school in, or I guess elementary school in Southern China. Um, that was when I was like six. So um, you went there. I, I didn't go there. Oh, no, no. That was almost. kind of because seventh grade, I would have moved uh, moved out, um, went to boarding school. Oh, I see. But it was also for like first grade till, I don't know how old you are in first grade, but yeah, something like six that. years old. You oh, know, sorry, six years, seventh grade. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, I get it. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I didn't go there. But you still speak uh, Mandarin? Have you just totally lost it? I mean, I still I have a pretty good group of friends uh, here that are that are Mandarin speakers. But yeah, Taiwan or you know mainland. Uh, my Cantonese has definitely waned quite a bit just because it's much less common in the group of friends that I have. I can understand and pick up quite a bit, but yeah. uh, Mandarin would definitely be a sort of the primary. Why don't you lay some Mandarin down? Lay, lay, lay some Mandarin down? Let's I get mean, this proved. I, 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 I don't think anyone believes it. Watch. It's amazing. Cool. Cool. It never gets old. <laughs> I mean, it's the back problem. to 2010, hired, hired. Could have made it up the whole time. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's the problem is people ask you to say something and then they're never going to know what you're saying. Yeah. So it's kind of a, you know, I've got a couple of phrases down, but totally. <laughs> uh, so your parents, were they accused of spying at one point? I know that was big news and I don't know how that worked out. Yeah. How did that come about? And that must've been so weird for you. That was a pretty messed up. Because you were drawn yeah. into it, right? As you know, yeah. So that was so 2014. I mean, China has a very you know tumultuous history of foreigners doing any type of work and mm -hmm. using them as pawns to get kind of things that they wanted. Um, and so in 2014, my parents were arrested in China, accused of being spies, essentially. And you know, it was foreign espionage. It was the very first foreign espionage case actually in Canada's history. Um, and so I spent a ton of time fielding media requests. Nobody really knew what was going on, but essentially what, what turned out was that it was in reaction to something that Canada had done, which was capture a guy named Subin who had hacked the national research database and Canada kind of called, called China out and said, Hey, we caught one of your guys, you know, you can't be doing this. They, they put them on blast on a world stage and essentially 
you know, China was like, well, yeah, well, we got two of yours as well. And they're spying too. And, and then it was, yeah, I mean. That's what they said. They, they said, they said you were spying as well. Yeah. And they said, well, we have a dossier of 35 years, you know, after 35 years of, you know, the CCP following you around China, it's not hard to, you know, pick and choose evidence and make something look like a, like a case. And so mm-hmm. there was, you know, also my parents at that time were doing work between China and North Korea. My parents were in North Korea all the time. So, I mean. Were they incarcerated? Yeah. So my, both my parents were in solitary for six months, oh, um, no. you know, interrogated anywhere from three to six hours a day for about six months. After six months, my mom was released on house arrest. And my dad actually ended up being put into a federal prison for another year and a half. No way. And so my mom was not really allowed to leave China. She one time had a, an ability to come back and see her mom who was pretty sick, but you know, she was put on a plane with 15 Chinese agents at the same time that followed her everywhere. And there was vans outside the house. It was pretty, pretty crazy. No way. Um, and that lasted till about, well, I guess two years after 2017. So 2016 ish. Um, yeah. Now now it's happened again. So, you know, it's, it's the same, not, not to them, but I mean to, you know, that's now there's the two Michaels, they just got released, but essentially it was, you know, exactly the same thing. Yeah. China's MO for how they get what they want. It's wild. What? So did you say they were in question like three to six hours a day? Uh, yeah. I mean, so they, they wrote a book about it. Um, and the book doesn't go into as much detail as, as I mean, I obviously heard kind of yeah, the real story with it, but you know, yeah, it was, it was kind of like, Hey, tell us, you know, this one person you met 22 years ago, tell us, tell us what your conversation was. Mm-hmm. And we know the guy's name because we somehow saw you know him coming to China and he meet with you guys. It's like, who know? you know, my parents would have met thousands and thousands of people over, you know, that 30 years of being in China. So yeah. It's kind of hard to, and they basically said, well, you have to keep writing things down until you, you give us the right answer. And so you just sit there and write hundreds and thousands of pages over, no over six months. And then eventually you have, yeah. And my parents are like, we don't, we don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know what this was. What was this thing? What was this thing? You know, we know you have evidence. We know you're working with, you know, who knows? So they were tortured. They weren't tortured, but I mean, you're, you're living in a, in a room with, with two guards in that room 24 yeah. hours a day, lights on 24 hours a day. I'm not saying their human rights weren't violated and all that. It was horrible. It, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't what you imagine. consider torture, but no. I mean, if someone made you in a room with two people watching you for 24 hours a day for six months without torture. being able to turn the lights yeah. on, not, couldn't shower by yourself, can't go to the washroom by yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's, cl- of, it's it may as well be torture. Like mental torture. Yeah, yeah, totally. And they were just asked questions over and over and over. Yeah, and pretty much, you know, well, who did you meet? I don't remember. Well, look in your diary or look in your calendar and exactly. write down stuff and they take it away. And they brought up boxes of information over the last 30 years of like every single conversation that had ever been had on whether that was phone calls, meetings, emails, anything that had hit a Chinese server you know it's it's pretty crazy to think how much information you know china has on yeah people like that it's wild um, but they have that on you know the the, the number at that point i think was they had about ten thousand people that their only job was dedicated to just following foreigners around china and creating files for them wow so it's a pretty big pretty big operation no doubt so were your parents eventually like they were released eventually were they uh like found innocent or what would that click so not technically um you know, they're yeah, right. Canadian, why would they? They just don't need to. Okay, we'll let you out of here, but we're not. Well, it ended up being a trade a trade deal um, between. It was sort of an extradition where Canada. We had a, we had a really really phenomenal American lawyer that helped kind of get everybody out eventually. But essentially, it was a trade deal. My dad still technically is still convicted in China. I think he had an eight year sentence. Um, so even if he went, he wouldn't be allowed to go back to China today. But if he did, he'd be put in jail. No way. Um, so that's now why they're doing work in. Thailand and Burma. It's because you can't go back to yeah to China anymore. 
I mean, maybe after eight years or not even. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. My parents like to do some pretty crazy stuff, but yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to be, uh, you know, the top of the list. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> so after, uh, after you worked with us at Kia 2010, 2011, what did you do after that? So after that, I kind of, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I kind of fell into real estate without really pursuing it. You know, it was kind of, you know, a, a meeting with right, us and I, and I ended up being okay. At, you know, I spoke Mandarin and I sort of ended up working with a number of real estate agents at that time, kind of doing like, you know, foreign buyer consulting and, and helping people do open houses and people picking people up from the airport and bringing them to, to showings and did that for about yeah. a year. Um, and then through that, I ended up working with, or I ended up meeting a group of guys that was in the technology space who were actually the, the founders of the guys that I started Spark with. Um, and they had a previous company that went bust. The founder ran away with all the money. And there was basically like a group of guys that were kind of like for hire. And I was, didn't know what I wanted to I do. That. I think we had a drink around that time. Yeah. And you yeah. were, um, re-aggregating, like creating a, an online marketplace for new yeah. projects with that team. Yeah. So the goal was always kind of to do what Spark is doing now, which is sort of the back end infrastructure for sales and marketing of projects. But we thought the only way for people to take us seriously is if we have some sort of a consumer facing exposure and it looks big and it looks sexy. And, and you know, how else do you get developers attention is not going to be through, hey, like you want to put all your valuable data on a platform that you've never heard of, that nobody knows, that's never been tested. So we kind of, you know, spearheaded that with a online marketplace to, to discover new projects. We, we had about, you know, four or 500 projects from around the world, all very high end luxury stuff. And that was what we used to start to gather leads online. And then those leads would then turn into leverage for us to go and pitch these developers and say, Hey, by the way, 25 people registered for your project on our site. Mm. You know, are you interested in, in having access to these and sort of getting them into the, into the system? And then mm. slowly we branched off the front end and, and then only, you know, the back end was left, which was the CRM and the email marketing and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a test. We we didn't really know what we were doing to be honest. Yeah, we just yeah. were trying to figure it out, and a bunch of us had some. Real yeah, figured out as we go, try things, see what works, what doesn't exactly. work. Yeah. I remember with the off our offices in Hong Kong and in Beijing, it was they weren't really that successful in terms of actually doing deals. They were more like people would come in and collect a lot of information, and yep. everybody who was interested in buying was uh, just they knew somebody locally. They were coming here. Uh, happy for the information may have indirectly generated a lot of sales, but in terms of direct sales on site, it kind of wasn't what it wasn't worth it at the end of the day. Yeah. And then the, I think that the other thing at that time, the market had become so swamped with people that were a bit scammy and coming in and just trying to like capture data and steal buyers and like, you know, show face and go to these conferences and represent themselves as other things that the market ended up getting saturated with, you know, a lot of distrust from the foreign buyers over in Asia or here. I mean the 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 transfer of buyers from Asia to here. Yeah. And then you ended up, you know, having a lot of issues with some of those buyers and that kind of trickled down and then, you know, now we're kind of where we are today with you know, the foreign buyers are still really, really big, but it's definitely not, I don't think, nearly what it was back in the, you know, two thousand ten to two thousand twelve kind of kind of zone. Well, they're not big right now. I mean, we've, I've kind of enjoyed COVID. That's been a silver lining for me. It was, yeah. you know, the conversation of, uh, for us ever since we, you know, put six Richmond realtors in helicopter and, and flew them to white rock to show them yeah. it was like 12 minutes away, um, <laughs> you know, and the, and the media spun that story into uh, billionaire Chinese buying real estate from the sky, which is, you know, it was wild. The two news helicopters following yeah. us and, and the spinning was just, it was a good lesson and how not to do PR for me. <laughs> and then for years after answering, 
helicopter cam and answering <laughs> questions about, uh, you know, foreign buyers. It got a bit old, honestly. Yeah. And COVID has been a nice two year break from that. Cause obviously there's no, uh, nobody flying here to buy real estate. Um, and we've been wildly successful since, uh, kind of halfway through, um, well, I was going to say last year, but it was the year before last now it's been, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, you know, when, when COVID hit in March, 2020, it was terrible, but yep. you know, six months later, we were kind of figuring out how to make it happen. And then all this sort of pent up demand from end users and all that kind of stuff has been, it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed dealing with hundred uh, percent locals and having a break from that foreign buyer conversation for sure. I think that that was everywhere too. I mean, we were, we were working on projects in, in a ton of different cities around North America and I think every, what, what I saw happen, at least, especially in, you know, during that time was everybody took kind of like a six month break, Yeah, you know, and there was, nobody knew what was going on. Everybody kind of hit pause, but as soon as, you know, the play button got hit again, all of a sudden you had all these buyers that normally were scattered in across, you know, let's say 20, 30 cities all now focusing on like five or six. Yeah. And so you had so much more demand for people to be in very, very specific places. And that's why, you know, Vancouver or Toronto, Miami, all these, all these places have boomed because the buyers that were buying in other places now are like, well, why don't, why would I buy there when I can buy anywhere? I can work from anywhere. We've realized that the economy, you know, the workplace economy has shifted completely mm-hmm. and I can be somewhere exactly where I want to be, not where my head office is based kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the, after, after, you know, having that online marketplace and, and, um, generating leads and then going to developers and we've got 25 leads and probably having mixed success with that. Some developers like, we don't need them. What does it cost? You know, it'd probably be kind of annoying. You, you eventually said, let's get into with the same group of guys. You said, let's get into this sort of the backbone or the, the, the infrastructure of how these sales are made. And, and did you enter at the, with spark with uh, the CRM? Is that the entry point? Yeah. So on the, on the back of the marketplace, we had built a, a lead capture platform, which oh, kind of turned into a CRM, I see. right? Cause as, yeah. as people were coming in, we had to have a place to store them and then you had to have a place to write notes and then you had to have a place to do interactions. And so the CRM kind of got built on the back end of, 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 you know, the marketplace. Yeah. And then as we had, you know, developers eventually sort of start to use the platform, whether they're from, you know, the Philippines or the States or, or from here, we saw the gravitation more towards the lead management stuff versus the actual front end. And so that was really where the demand came from was we split off the front end and realized if we're going to make it in a marketplace, we had players in the market like Buzz Buzz Homes, these guys at that time. And you, know, you got to spend a ton of money to get any traction in that world. You know, it's, it's a huge, it's an outflow game of capital for years and years and years until you become the biggest. And then hopefully you can monetize that data. But, you know, we didn't, we were a couple guys in my living room and, you know, we'd had some small attraction, but we realized that that was never going to be a way for us to actually sustain the company. And yet people were starting to be willing to pay for the backend solution, which we started charging like, I think a hundred bucks a month for or something back then. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty bare bones, but yeah. that was really what led into all the rest of the development. Yeah. That's so cool. Like you looked at the CRM part of what you're doing and like, this is pretty awesome. Let's deep dive on this exactly, and offer it to, how did it start? What year was that? I mean, technically we were incorporated in 2012. Um, but I mean, spark as it is now, I mean, we kind of did that for two years and then it took another kind of two years to build, to build the platform itself. So, I mean, I guess, you know, 2016 sort of, you know, spark as it's released today was probably around 2016. If you look at sort of like the version 1.0. Yeah of it, but that's cool. Yeah. I mean, there was all sorts of versions in the, before that, that, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, are we working in Toronto? Are we working in Vancouver? Are we working in the States? Yeah. Um, who wants what? Yeah. And then also like, how do you, 
keep the lights on at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Which is the, probably the hardest part is like, who's going to pay us money? You know, that's where we're going to focus is because we, you know, we had bills to pay. And totally. Were there some uh, early days with it like touch and go? Were there some points where you thought this isn't going to work? And Oh, man, many times. Yeah. I mean, it, we've had, you know, we've had negative balances in the company. You know, I, I more times than I can count. I remember going back with, with Cody, who's sort of business partner and all of our early screenshots were like screenshots of our negative overdraft from our TD bank account being like, remember these days, you know, negative $3,000 after payroll comes out and you're like, Oh no, what are you going to do? Um, and that happened, that happened a lot of times, but you know, somehow it always, it always worked out or we, you know, took on little side projects here and there and, and made, made it happen. Bootstrap. Um, yeah. I mean, it was in my apartment. It was five guys in my, in my living room yeah. a couple of years. And when did you start raising capital as a way of, you know, getting growth accelerating? Yeah, that would have been, I think around 2016 was when we got accepted into the Grow Lab Accelerator program, which, you know, prior to that, I didn't know what angel investing was. I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't even know that people raised money for businesses. Um, and then that world opened up through these meetup groups and all these things I was going to, to talk to people in the industry. And, you know, they said, why don't you join an accelerator? And we did, it was three of us. And that at the end of that accelerator, we ended up getting a BDC like loan for 150 grand. Yeah. And that was really what allowed us to hire our first employee or our first two employees. And, you know, at that point we were like, oh, we've made it. Yeah. 150 grand. That's like <laughs> big time. That's like, you know, 250% more than we've ever had, had in our bank account. So this is like, and that floated us for another year and a half, um, which, you know, it sounds kind of crazy now. Yeah. But, that was, that was what it was. We had a little shared office space that cost us like 400 bucks a month or 300 bucks a month. And then after that, we raised another, then we realized you can raise money for this. And so if we get some traction, you can raise some more money and that kind of led into. That's yeah, motivating, right? Yeah. I mean, also is, you, you want to get, you want to get paid. So, you know, totally. if you realize you're not going to get paid from the system yet because you're not big enough, like the only other way to do it and to keep the lights on and to be able to hire people and kind of win yeah. um, is to, you got to raise capital. You need scale. Yeah, exactly. And now you've done a lot. I know you, I think you've raised 5 million bucks lately. We year. did a, yeah. So we raised 5 million us, um, in July this last year, which puts our total raise somewhere around 10, 10 million or so cool. um, over the last kind of six years, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't all at once. I mean, that would have been a very different, but it was yeah, totally. a million here, a million and a half here. And yeah. this was our largest raise by, by yeah, a it's awesome. Congrats, man. It's big time. It's just getting started. It feels like still really, it's, you know, every raise kind of like you reset, Yeah. you know, you reset everything and the, yeah. the goals get bigger and the projections get, yeah. go further out and it never feels like you go anywhere yet. You're always going like yeah. somewhere really fast. It's, it's kind of strange. And I know it's still a private company, but are you able to share, I mean, at least the ones that are public about their ownership or their investment in your company? Yeah. The, the largest, largest investors we have right now would be BDC venture so which is an arm of bank of canada yeah and then pender fund who is uh sorry one of the largest largest private slash public asset managers in in canada as well so they were the ones that led our our series a in in july and they would be the before that it was primarily individual high net worth guys small kind of like brokers deals that were put together um and this is actually the reason that we we chose to go with bdc on this raise is because we wanted you know, we want to solidify ourselves with an institutional backer. Yeah. Right. You want to make it real. You know, it's, it's not, not to say it's not, it's easy to, but it's, it's easier to get a rich guy to write you a, a decent sized check. Um, you can convince him. You don't have to go through all the, 
the audit and the committees and the committees and, and all these, you know, these, these, these big compliance pieces that come with raising institutional money, but the institutional money also, also allows you to get into a lot bigger clientele because you can say, well, look, we're not going anywhere. You know, we're backed by very, very deep pockets. We have, you know, the security and, and, and the backing and the compliance and all the things that people might you know, shy away from, from a small company, especially when we're dealing with some, you know, big, big kind of public company clients in the, in the U S and Canada. Um, and that's become more and more of a, I think for sure, as we've, as we've gotten bigger, it's like, well, how do we know you're going to be around in two years or three years or five years? If we're going to give you 20 projects, you know, totally. you want to make sure, you know, we could go with Salesforce You know, no one's going to get fired for bringing on Salesforce, right? You might, people might be mad or frustrated about it, but no one's going to lose their job over it. Totally. So that's kind of what we've been battling. And that's why we made that decision to kind of go on the institutional side. So how have you got good at raising capital? You must've learned a lot along the way. I mean, is there some part of it that you just figured out that you didn't know when you started or is it about the deck or how does it work? I think there's probably a couple of things. Um, well, A, I probably did over 500 pitches. So when you do 500 pitches, you start to get better at pitches. No um, it's, it's my least favorite part of the job for sure. I hate raising capital. It's, I hate asking people for money, um, but it's a necessity. And I think that the other thing really is you have to ask for asking for a small amount of money is really hard. Asking for a larger amount of money becomes significantly easier because you're dealing with a small part of a big fund or a, or a big purse versus a big part of a small purse. Mm -hmm. And so if a, 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 you know, an individual guy is going to write you a million dollar check, maybe he only has 2 million bucks to write in an investment. So he's, you're putting 50% of his eggs in your basket. Yeah. Whereas with these larger groups, you know, they're going to, these guys can cut $5 million checks all day and not even notice it. Yeah. So it was really as once we started asking for more money, it became a lot easier to raise, to raise money. And again, it's, you can't always do that at the very beginning, but sometimes actually, you know, I think it's easier if you would go on with no revenue and just a big blue sky picture and a market analysis and saying, Hey, I think this thing's big. It's probably easier to raise a bunch of money like that because people don't know, don't have any metrics to benchmark it off of. Totally. If they understand the market, they're going to say, yeah. well, yeah, I think this could be that big. Um, but when you easy. have revenue, they got to look at it, right? Well, when you have revenue, they can look at it. If the revenue happens to not be super yeah. good, yeah. then it's, then it's, you know, significantly harder to, mm -hmm. to raise capital. Cause like, well, we're just going to wait till next month to see how good next month is. Mm -hmm. And then the month after and then yeah. it kind of trails on forever. Yeah. And I think it's public. You were around that same time you were breaking through the $2 million revenue number. Is that right? During the cap, yeah, that would have been pre capital a couple raise. of years, pre capital raise. Yeah. That would have been kind of the, the year before that, yeah. I believe. Um, again, the other, the other weird thing is, you know, how people calculate revenue in this world, right? Is it, ACV is it some sort of lifetime value of a client? What does ACV mean? Sort of, um, basically like annual contract value yeah, yeah. of of the client. So yeah. in, in the software world, you know, you sign a client, but you have to amortize that revenue over the life of the contract, and that contract could be a year, two years, three years. I see, yeah. So technically, if you do a three year contract, the money you get up front is a lot less than the money you can recognize, even though you have a commitment. For. Yeah, I see. So that's why it's it's actually better sometimes to sign shorter contracts. Totally. Even though it locks you in for three years, because on the on your books it looks like a lot less money. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird. I don't know. I see value in that. A three year contract is worth more than one year, but not everyone does. Is what you're saying. True. But when you're raising, yeah. when you're looking at your IFRS accounting standards, you know, and what you can report on as your actual revenue, you know, so the, our deferred revenue could be three times as much as our actual recurring revenue just yeah. because of the contracts that we have signed. Yeah. But technically on the books, that's a liability, not a, 
not sort of a an really because you have work to perform to earn it because you owe them now you know you owe them a service even though they owe you money you still owe them a service so it's actually a liability which is very which that to me doesn't sense. make any sense no, that's, that's just intuitive. that's how the tax guy looks at it really yeah but i guess every investment group has their own way of looking at it too right it depends so it's, fine, it's finding the balance right it's finding yeah. how much weight do they put on the deferred revenue versus the immediate revenue versus you know the stuff that's coming in one-time fees and recurring you know so you're basically modeling out all these examples to try to appease the yeah the larger yeah group yeah so what's your company worth now? Can you can you share? Is there a number that the raise is based on that was public? I mean, it's the number was never really public, um, but I mean, I, the ballpark I could give you is you know we're north of thirty. That's amazing! Point. Congratulations! It, it, yeah. it doesn't make. I mean, it doesn't mean anything really unless you can do something with it. But you know, yeah. in, the, in theory, that would be kind of where. Yeah, but you got smart people, including you know national banks and and groups like the Pender Group that are you know, buying into an uh, evaluation approximately around that. And, uh, and they're smart people and they're putting their money there. So that says a lot, if not like what it's worth today, but, or what it's going to be worth very soon and, or how much they believe in the whole sector. Why is the sector so hot? I mean, do you think it's because, uh, I've wondered if it's because there is, you know, we're strictly in kind of the condo development marketing business, but you know, we can't help but watch everything and expose to everything. And, and you see cap rates on commercial buildings, you know, getting bought down to ridiculously no numbers and a lot of equity out there and large funds out there. Yeah. And I wonder, I saw a DTZ trade at nine times EBITDA and it's a pretty good number it's for great. a, for a services company. Or was it nine times revenue? I can't remember, but it was a particularly large, I couldn't have been nine times revenue, but anyways, a really large number. And I think it's because there's like, real estate minded people with capital that are looking at, you know, apartment buildings and commercial buildings and they, they just don't like the cap rates anymore. So they're looking at the sort of the next degree of something that they're comfortable with. It's yeah. maybe got bigger upside like tech. Do you see yeah, that same that's, way? that's exactly what I, how I, how I see as well. So I think yeah. you have a lot of the, everybody's made a lot of money in real estate mm -hmm. over the last, let's say 10 years and all these massive groups and funds and families, family offices, whatever it, be they've now they're now looking for a way to get bigger multiples on the money that they've made yeah. and also be able to value add their fundamental assets so that's really why is like you have you have the, you know the second generation of of ownership of these you know the baby boomer generation that started these or owned these or took these over and now you have you know their their family or their their children essentially coming in and saying hey but actually i think i know this better than i know real estate let me let me look at the tech side and the tech side happens to have these astronomical valuations so even if you even if you blend the two you still end up in a way better place even in a down market yeah so it's kind of i think where we never we've never seen that much capital outflow from these real estate organizations especially when you know you had COVID hit no one was buying office buildings but they were investing in tech because tech was it was everything and they had a lot of money which normally they'd be spending on actual buying hard assets now they're investing in things to sort of pad their future investments or leverage their future investments up, you know, when things get a little bit better. It makes sense. Maybe for their, in their mind, it's tech, but it's real estate back tech in a way, right? It's tech, but it's got the tailwind of, of real estate, which for a hundred years has been, you know, in the long term is always the best investment in the world, I think. I agree. So when you look at the marketplace out there now, like what other prop tech companies are you watching? Like what seems super exciting for you? I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, 
I feel like I sometimes get so inundated with information on, on companies. And I think the, the big challenge everyone's coming across right now is that no big prop tech company is actually making a lot of money that matches their valuation. So you have a ton of money that's gone into these huge, huge organizations, but no one's really cash flowing properly like in other sectors yet. Yeah. So now with all those investments are starting to catch up. Yeah. So there's a lot of cool tech out there, but does that cool tech make a lot of money? Yeah. That's the still TBD mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's everything from leasing to commercial, mm -hmm. you know, to you know, pay your rent with your credit card. And, and there's a million great ideas, but not every great idea actually makes really, really good money mm -hmm. unless you have another way to monetize on top of that. And so I think there's a lot of money that's outflowed, not a lot of, not a lot of big exits in our, in our world mm -hmm. yet. Um, you know, and then you still have the big groups like the Realogies that are, you know, just buying up small companies at big valuations and just kind of like padding their EBITDA slightly, you know, and, and then now saying that they're in tech. Does Realogy own Colliers? Realogy owns uh, Sotheby's oh. and they own Corcoran Sunshine and, or Corcoran in general. And they own like a ton of other, you know, platforms are huge, huge, huge company. Um, but, and they're a fund. Are they, are they more like real estate focused or tech focused? They're, they're traditionally all real estate focused. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they own like big project marketing groups. They own, you know, brokerages, they own all sorts of, all sorts of fundamental kind of real estate yeah. companies. Yeah. And now Realogy technology is like, going into you know your examples of even like compass right it's it's a brokerage but it was getting tech valuations mm -hmm. because it raised on tech whether or not its fundamentals were still just a brokerage you know which is phenomenal right yeah if you do it totally you know, the market's going to decide if it likes it or not that's not yeah. up to the individual investor but that's why people are doing it it's because you can get those valuations totally you can't get that we had joseph in here the other day from tribe mm. kind of similar you know uh property management yep. moved into prop tech and uh, he started in tech and then, you know, offering uh, services to people who really needed a lot of convincing that they needed them or wanted them. And then eventually basically made it what felt must've felt like a really risky decision to say, I forget, let's forget trying to sell these software services. Let's just do the work with our tools better than everyone else. And yeah, it seems like it's going pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think that that sector has, has started to trade, extremely high you know the property management groups are you know, it's hard to even buy one right now yeah. everybody wants one yeah because yeah. the residual income because the residual income and be and because it's still a very undisrupted world also but it's also a very stable world for the most part mm -hmm. you, know, you have your book your book spits off a good percentage of cash every single year and someone if someone else thinks they can squeeze a little bit more out of it because they've got better systems or a better playbook yeah you know, it's or larger infrastructure exactly. that can just manage it more economically, <laughs> that kind of thing. So you are in 80 cities now, is that right? Something like that. I don't, I mean, on a daily basis. I heard that now. hour. It's an amazing. Number. It's about, it's about 80 cities. Yeah. I mean, we've, it's hard to keep track of. We don't have like a big board that shows us every city, but yeah. we do have at least, I would say at least 80 at this point. Um, and now some odd ones that have popped up in the last little while, you know, we've got Costa Rica, we've got Panama, um, you know, we've got Qatar, we have all these, you know, essentially anywhere that people are building new development projects. Yeah. Now that we've turned on online, our online marketing engine, um, people are finding us from all over the world. So it's been an interesting, you know, we, uh, we just pitched a project in, in France the other day, cool. which I mean, it's not like 
it, growing too fast can be it can be a challenge too, especially when you're growing in in a lot of regions because the support. You know, if you sign a client that's French, you now got to support a French time zone. And yeah. You got now got to have support that's in French, and so there's there's a pro and a con to each of those. I think as well. I know. Um, and we we've been very clear. It's like if you're in Panama, like we're not gonna we don't speak Portuguese. So you got to, you got to be able to self-serve this for the most part or be able to do it in English. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's really cool to see that there is demand. And I think this is kind of the next chapter of where we're going to go is like, this stuff is everywhere, Yeah. whether it's New Zealand or the Philippines or Qatar yeah. or Dubai or London, you know, it's really the process of selling new developments yeah. is really the same yeah. anywhere. And what's, what's your favorite city? Like what, what's the best city for, for development marketing? I think that's a, it's a, that's a tough question. Um, my, as, as far as like what I think is the most interesting or, or the, the most profitable. Well, thing. both, you know, what's most interesting and, and, you know, where do you do the most business, I guess. And, you know, selfishly, like what are there companies like ours in other cities that you really admire? Or I guess most of your clients are developers, right? Maybe 80% and 20% are development. It's marketers. about 60, 60% developers, 40% project marketing slash brokerage. Oh yeah. Um, I think the most interesting city right now is, is definitely, well, South Florida, Miami, for sure, just because they're, they're bigger, they're flashier, they're willing to, they're willing to do more and spend more than other places just because that's the culture down there. And uh, most of these other cities have very, very long histories with project marketing or selling condos. Miami's kind of all come up within the next last like 10 years. Yeah. And so every project there is crazier and bigger. Um, I was just down in the Bahamas and I, I did a, this like virtual tour and I've seen a lot of these like VR, you know, sell your real estate through a VR platform and this company, Uprix or Upix, not Uprix. <laughs> but they're really nice guys. Yeah. They're, 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 they're great, but you know, they they could use some work. Um, no, it was, it was the coolest VR experience I've ever had. And they sold out the entire, I don't know if you, you know, Miami, the like 11 nightclub. So it's like 11 is like this 24 hour nightclub in, in Miami. It's the biggest, craziest party. And 11 just decided to launch a condo tower that's like kind of connected to the nightclub. And it went so well that they launched a second tower as well. And this is all before they finished building their presentation center. No way. And they sold every single unit through this virtual tour. And I was like, how good can it be? You know, I've seen a bunch of these things yeah. walk through these. I did it and I was literally mind blown at how good it was. You know, like they're like, you know, you go up to the balcony on the 60th floor and the guy's like, oh, step over the railing. And I'm like, not a chance. Because it looked too real. It's too, it's too yeah. real. And you know, you, you go walk out on the pool and like, you think you're going to fall in and get wet. Yeah. And it's, it's just like they had a 95% conversion rate from people that did that tour to purchasing a condo. I wonder if it's because the tech crazy. is so good because the, the high you get off that experience is so energizing. I think, it, and this is, so now they don't even know if they're going to do the, finish the presentation center because they don't have any units. Left. I think they have like six units left in both towers and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So again, Miami's you know, to go back to the original point, I think that they're willing to do these more interesting things or, you know, try new ways, um, you know, and the partnerships they're doing in their buildings are, you know, they're, they're doing partnerships with like Baccarat and Cipriani and yeah. Rolls Royce and Bentley and all, you know, these towers and they all come with their own really cool, interesting advantages that don't just live inside the building, which is what a lot of, you know, people think of amenities as being right. Well, what, what pool do I get? What gym do I get? Yeah. This is like, Oh, you bought in the Cipriani tower. 
well, anytime you're at a Cipriani restaurant anywhere in the world, like you can kind of get access to it. Yeah. So it's kind of like an outside amenity of your building. And they're doing a lot of these interesting models that oh, haven't really that. been done yeah. in most other cities. So that's, I think that's the most interesting place, I think, for no doubt. me at least. Yeah. But in terms of meat potatoes, is it Toronto, Vancouver? I mean, Toronto is Toronto's just, it's just so broker heavy. Um, I mean, you can't really beat the Toronto market. It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. I, I don't even understand it half the time. And it's just, it's so, so strong. And I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. Right. They need more condos if anything, Yeah, which is crazy to think. But, wow. but I think if you, but I think genuinely, if you took, you know, the processes and the history and, you know, even the, the things that you guys do to some of these other markets, like you guys would be very far ahead as far as a lot of the stuff that you actually do on a day-to-day basis is how you interact with leads, how you build lists, how you do your marketing, how you execute, what kind of reporting and information you give shareholders and stakeholders and buyers, et cetera, because these other markets haven't really had to do all that stuff yeah. yet because they're all newer. So yeah, there's, there's some amazingly phenomenal groups in these, in these markets, but there's also a lot of ambiguity as far as what actually works and what doesn't work. Yeah. So where are you guys headed? What opportunities uh, do you see? Is it new geographic markets or expanding? I know we work with you a lot on the CRM, kind of half of your product um, yeah. and a lot of the reporting right now. How many projects do we have with Spark? Uh, every single one. Every single one. Yeah. yeah. Every, every well, you're welcome. Did you bring a gift? or? <laughs> it's in the car. A bottle of wine at Christmas? <laughs> yeah. Nothing? Um, it's coming. Don't worry. And you have a uh, contract writing platform as well? And is it, are you continuing to head in that direction towards the contracts or what's the plan? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's kind of a deepening of the product that's really going, going on right now. Whereas, you know, we kind of touch every aspect to, you know, the first 10 feet and we want to go a lot deeper, you know, into the foundation of the, of each of those pieces of the system. So whether that's getting deeper into the transaction, getting more into the actual buyer verification and getting more into the integrations that we're doing with third party platforms, you know, being able to speak to a lot of other, you know, systems essentially, whether that's accounting or online marketing. Um, so that's kind of the next phase of this is like, you know, bolstering the APIs, having them be able to talk and become more of a platform versus a product um, and have the ability to push and pull data to a lot of different sources, which is going to give you, you know, the ability to do more stuff and not have to worry about always oh, spark going to be able to work with this new system we want to try. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of where, where we're going and, and yeah, that, that involves that's, that's the contract writing platform. That's the reporting suite. And a lot of these, that information is coming from, you know, the new markets that we get into, right. Our new reservations platform was a direct you know, request and, and requirement from the Miami market because they do reservations in a very specific way. But I also see implications of that back in, you know, projects here in Vancouver and in Toronto and in other places as well. Is that because the rules are different, you mean? It's just because the market is different. It's just because the agents are used to different things. And, so, you know, some of it's to do with the rules, but, you know, just everywhere. So how do they do it in Miami? So Miami, essentially, they they write reservations like contracts and then they use all those reservations at a later date to then flip them into contracts. But they basically use that, like that it could be three months, four months out. Nobody knows exactly when the contract date's going to be, where they're actually allowed to write, but they take all these reservations as if they're contracts. And then they flip the switch and say, the contracts are open now. And then all those reservations have a chance to write. And if they don't, then they go down the list. I see. Let's do a different, a different contract. So are the contracts binding on the buyer? The reservations, as far as I know, are, are, the not, reservations are, are not actually binding, yeah. but... 
there's so much demand that if you like, they have to be binding. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Otherwise, it'd be crazy to give it up because yeah. by then the price is half the time's already gone up, or the access is you know. And the buyer knows the price and the specific home when they do a reservation. Half the time they don't even know the price. Most of the prices aren't released till later. It's more like I want a two bedroom, you know, on these floors that's this size. That's it. So they did give a deposit of some type. There's sometimes there's deposits that are taken. They yeah. may be small, um, more of like a reservation fee. Yeah. But it's not like a full, not like a full deposit. No. Yeah. Cool. It's wild. It's like putting your name in for like a lottery, you know, like back in the day in Hong Kong, right? You want to buy a condo, yeah. put your name into the lottery and hope that you get selected to be able to buy a place. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of these markets are. We saw a bit of that recently. We sold 193 homes in 48 hours last week. That's and crazy. Yeah, it was. Uh, Where was that? It was in Surrey. And it was mostly the the smoothest, most best organized launch ever. Wow. Um, except for at one point when, you know, one of the buyer's agents kind of invited everybody he knew to his portion of the event without uh, sort of managing expectations and whatnot and, and collected uh, bank drafts from people and there were some really irate people, you know, the, in that, you know, that one hour window, um, there were some people asking them tough questions. Like when I called you, you said I was third and, and, and you got 20 homes and I wasn't one of them. Like, how did that happen? And yeah, it was intense. Well, wow. yeah, I was happy to help them out and sort of talk to the room for a minute until it got a bit rough. And then I got out yeah, of there yeah. as quick as I could. <laughs> Makes it makes sense. Yeah. Good problems to have. And, and, uh, it, it was super fun to, to sell it out, but I, uh, I'm jealous of your exposure to kind of what we do, you know, all over the world. You were just in Panama. Is that right? I was just in, um, well, my last trip was Toronto, New York, Bahamas, Fort Lauderdale, Montreal. And then back. All work related. Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a couple of stopovers. Yeah. You got to have a stopover anyways. Yeah, yeah. So you may as well go somewhere you want to be. Yeah, totally. But typically it's like you go to conferences there and talk to people and, and see if they're, you know, heard of you and interested in working together. Yeah. We use, I mean, we don't, we don't go anywhere unless we already have either a client or something set up. Yeah. Um, so we're always, we used to, we used to kind of travel around a bit more for like individual meetings. Now we want to have a client before we're going to go somewhere. Um, it's a FaceTime. It's more, more of a FaceTime, yeah. build relationships and then also do some training and get on the ground with them instead of being like, Hey, here theoretically is what you could do. And then still having to go back and have a decision made. Nice. So we've waited we've, we've put together, you know, our sales processes now are a little bit more robust as far as we know how to close these deals from far away. And then when yeah. we actually go there, there's more value to add than just being like, Hey, I can show you the same thing I could have shown you. Yeah. You know? So these aren't necessarily conferences you're attending, but you're going there to meet one of your clients. And then while you're there, you might meet six prospects or something. Yeah. So this last trip, uh, Bahamas was a conference. So it was the real deal conference. So it's called the future city and it's the first one they've done since, or, well, there wasn't one for the last two years. And this is the first one in two years that they've done, but it essentially is a super tight knit group of people, everybody from, you know, big, big name developers to huge brokerages. There's, I think there was maybe 150 people total at the conference, which is very, really small. So you end up getting to talk and meet to meet everybody yeah. multiple, multiple times, breakfast, dinner, playing roulette, you know, yeah. drinks at 2 a.m., you know, so there's a very, there's a varying degree of relationship building that you have there, which is kind of interesting because normally at a conference, it's like, here's my business card. I'll, I'll send you an email later. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And that was, that was a conference that, you know, we specifically were, we're going to, that we're going to be speaking at next year, which is, which is kind of fun on a big new development panel. But then, you know, prior to that, the rest of my team was in Miami and they had 16 meetings in four days. So it was just oh, like man. that. And some of those are new clients. Some of those are prospective clients. Some of those are inquiries, some of those are training sessions, but it's just back to back to back. You know, when we go down there, cause there's so much work, 
that, you know, you cram everything into a couple day yeah. period. But, Sounds like fun. Mostly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's usually pretty fun. I mean, I love being on a plane. I love staying in a hotel and seeing a new place and, eat, and, and a, you know, seeing new people at a, at a new restaurant. And I think it's, it's kind of invigorating and gets you back excited about yeah. how things for sure. Um, you know, not that I don't love Vancouver. I think it's great here, but yeah, getting a perspective outside makes you more excited to come back and share what you learned or what you've seen and things like that. Yeah, no doubt. I've always experienced traveling abroad and, and when I come home, I appreciate the food that we got here, the quality of the restaurants, the ethnic families we have that are putting out like that world-class food. Unreal. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely world-class and I don't know if there's any other city in the world that's even as good. Tell me across the board, not, not, there's not. There's not, right? Especially when you look into like the, the world of Asian cuisine. I think, you know, we're yeah. top, top, top tier. Yeah, no doubt. I agree. So what's the BC Real Estate Tech Association? So that's a, an association that I was asked to kind of become the president of. Um, but some delays in that have, have kind of happened just with COVID. And, no doubt. you know, it was really supposed to be a quarterly event and then some things that we were trying to bring is guys originally started the VA VRAR association. Oh yeah. Um, and they're, they were launching the, the real estate tech association, but the problem was, you know, COVID kind of put a damper on the launch of that. So yeah. it's still in the works. We're still hoping to have some events come up sort of in the next six months. Um, but with all the changing regulations, we weren't really able to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to do another, Hey, let's all jump on a zoom call and like cheers each other. Nobody wants that. And exactly. And so we just said, look, it's going to, it's going to take a little bit of time to, to get things properly organized, but it'll be a thing where we host things at our office and that, that, that doesn't need to be new development oriented. It could be anything real estate. So whether you're an agent or you just want to learn about the market or you want to have, you know, something to say in any, any regards, it's really sort of a, a congregating going back to the old days of like the meetups Yeah, and you know, just getting together, having some drinks and just talking and not knowing what's going to happen exactly, but all have a common interest. Um, and that's, and that's really what it was, what it was about. But, you know, I don't have anything super exciting to share on that yet because yeah. it's still yeah. coming. COVID took down a lot, a lot of things and that, that might turn out to be one of them. Hopefully not, but you know, we'll see. Hope not. So you must be hiring a lot of people since you raised all that money. Trying. Yeah. That's it. hard, it's a, right? It's very, very challenging. Yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, you're, you're not, you're not competing with, Vancouver anymore. You're competing with everywhere. Yeah. Right. So anybody, even you're hiring here is also getting offers from Nashville and, you know, Dallas and Toronto. So it's, it's, it's become really, really challenging. And I think we're also quite picky with who we hire, Yeah, which makes it double challenging, especially in the software, the software world where, you know, you have these big companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook that are willing to write blank checks yeah. for guys that are even semi subpar half the time that you know, are scoring a C or a D on our code tests. You know, they're still getting a $220,000 base salary. No way. Um, so, you know, how do you compete with that? You know, are you going to lower your standards and pay more money? Like, I don't think that's the right way to go. And I think there'll be a slight reckoning in that world within the next kind of 12 months, but it's been, it's been challenging. Yeah, for sure. So how do you do it? What's your people strategy or your hiring strategy? I mean, we, I mean, I know you, you're anti recruiter, but we do use a recruiter for a lot of our positions. Um, we're very, very specific with the type of people that we're trying to hire right now. So we're, you know, in, in the CS world, it's, v it's probably our fastest growing department. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we, we lean a lot on a, the flexibility and B the culture that we've, that we've built. Yeah. And if you don't, see the value in that we're not just gonna it's not just you know dollars for dollars it's, yeah. it's really you have to appreciate the above and beyond stuff you get from yeah. a company like spark yeah 
Um, but again, not everybody sees that. Yeah. So the strategy really is just, you got to cast a bigger net and look outside of, you know, your geographic constraints and yeah. realize you have to be able to build and train people that don't live or work exactly where you are currently. Um, so, and do they have to move here or they can work from where they are? No, I mean, I think we're a lot of the positions we're putting out now are, are more remote than they have been. Um, but at this point, look, it's just, if we find someone that's good, you know, if they want to move here, that's awesome. If they want yeah. to work somewhere else, that's also okay. Yeah. It's not hard. I'm not anti-recruiter. One of my best friends is a recruiter. I just, I, you know, if we only lost one person last year, it was, you know, to a recruiter, it's always that way. Yep. And I, you know, I don't love that part of it for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, the, um, we did hire one once and it just wasn't a totally awesome experience. You know, they, uh, one, I remember one of our supplier partners we work with, a creative agency called me kind of like principal to principal and said, could you please ask your recruiter to stop calling my people? <laughs> and I was totally unaware of course, cause yeah, you don't yeah. certainly know who they call. And apparently they were calling, you know, the same person or people over and over. And it was kind of embarrassing. And, and I don't know anyone that would have worked at that company that would have been suitable for the role that we were specifically looking for anyway. So right. it didn't seem totally awesome, but I know in, in tough times that um, they got a good database and they got some skilled people and, you know, there's, yeah, think, there's only so many options you have, right? Yeah, I think I think for I mean again, one of my best friends is a recruiter as well, and you know her and her company have, I would say, hired probably almost seventy percent of Spark. So at this point, it's become they they'll see people that they think are a good fit, even if we aren't hiring, oh. and so they start to identify the more people that they've hired. They know the culture. They know they know yeah. if these people are going to work, and so they'll say, hey, if you, just in case you're wondering came across a great candidate would they be a fit yeah so it's not always a that's cool hey here's all the positions it's like because yeah. you've hired so many people for us yeah, yeah. now you already know that's the way to do it i mean choose one company stick with them yeah. that way they don't poach your people from you probably <laughs> you'll never know <laughs> you but, hope, hope not yeah. yeah and then now uh, they get to know you that makes a lot of sense exactly maybe you have to give it another try one day <laughs> so what else is happening you uh moved to strathcona i did it's a cool neighborhood after six years in Yale town ish. Yeah. Yale towned out. I think I just got, yeah, I got Yale towned out. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sick of people not like saying hi in the elevator and you know, yeah. it's, it doesn't feel like a neighborhood. And I felt, you know, I just felt, I don't know, time to grow up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, I got a big dog and he's, he, you know, what kind of dog is an English shepherd. Oh, that is a big he's dog. Three, he's like 65, 70 pounds oh, hey. decent size. And you know, he's, I don't think he loves, for a condo. loves the elevator life. Yeah, totally. Um, and now it's like run downstairs, sit on the porch, you know, yeah. got room to, yeah. to play. And you know, it's, it's a little bit more neighborhoody and still walkable. I mean, it's still so cool. Yeah. I realized I never came back when I was in Yale Town. I even never really came to like Chinatown or Gastown anymore. Yeah. Not that it's far. It's just like, you just don't really end up coming here. Yeah. Whereas now I'm like, I have all the new, you know, all my coffee shops and all my restaurants are completely awesome. different. And, it's cool. Yeah, super cool. Well, I hope we see more of you. I mean, you're super close now, right? Just down the street. Come by with your giant dog and say hello. I almost brought him today. Yeah, you should have. We're dog friendly. I had a dog in my lap. <laughs> my shirt is covered in dog hair. That's because he loves me the most. I've decided. I don't know. Um, 
So anyway, I love what you're doing, man. It's awesome. I'm so proud of your success. Everything you learned at Key in 2010 and 2011 is still, paying off, it's right? Still, it's, still, it's still being used in practice. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Exactly. Um, anyway, but you are a Vancouver success story. I mean, there there is only so much tech here. There's only so much capital being raised here. And uh, and you're one of you know the leaders, rising star for sure. And we're super proud to... I guess there's nothing more we can do for you. We've given you all of our projects. So pretty <laughs> tapped out. Well, you look, I'm not, I'm not even the right guy to talk to on that anymore. I don't know. That's the problem. Yeah, you don't know. I, I don't know. Well, let yeah. me tell you, we're giving you all of our projects. Well, I appreciate it. You're probably your best customer, but don't worry about it. We'll just wait till Christmas. <laughs> I'm just joking. We don't do, we don't roll like that. <laughs> um, so anything, uh, anything we should know about Spark and, you know, any plans or announcements coming that you could give us a bit of a sneak preview on or hmm it's a good question any advice for young entrepreneurs that are following in your footsteps have you thought about joining eo have you heard of it i've heard of it um i thought about it. i think when i initially got connected with eo we were too small and i don't think i met the criteria for it but i think now we we've surpassed that yeah um i don't know i, I just I hadn't crossed my mind until you just said it again. Yeah. Well, you should think about it. I mean, what I like about it is that I love the people, you know, there's, um, I'm busy and yeah. impatient sometimes. Um, but they're probably like literally 95% of the members I could sit down and talk to for three hours with no problem. Awesome. Um, because they're interesting to me. They're, they're, you know, taking life by the horn, so to speak. They're, uh, trying to solve big problems. Um, they're dealing with the same kind of opportunities and challenges that we all are, you know, like, you know, sales, marketing, operations, finance, you know, all these type of things are, they're kind of the same people, um, just sort of same shit, different piles, so to speak. Um, and most of what I get out of it is, uh, from forum, you know, this group of, uh, six other beauties that I meet with, uh, once a week, uh, sorry, once a month. And, um, we work together in a sort of a structured format to, um, in a super highly confidential environment. Interesting. Kind of share our biggest opportunities and challenges again, strictly confidential. Like this is a group that you would tell your deepest and darkest to knowing that no one would ever know ever. And, uh, and personal, professional, everything. And that's where the learning comes from. And, it's not like the businesses have to be exactly the same because sometimes you have more to learn from someone who's got a fresh perspective, an outside perspective on, of, on what you're doing as right. opposed to somebody like you're probably a member of tech forum yeah, yeah, and yeah. that kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of people doing quite similar stuff and yeah, the diversity is good. You should consider it. Yeah. I mean, that's sounds great. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for coming, man. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun. Appreciate it. Let's do it again soon. Sounds good. All right. Cheers. Man.